So uh, today we're going to finish up stuff. Um, this is probably the best class I will ever teach. I'm going to brag on myself, okay? And the reason I'm going to say that is because I'm really just the index finger that's going to press the play button on this one, all right? We're going to finish up the Lee Strobel series. Remember, the, I've played a number of the DVDs for you all, just little short segments of them, right? And uh, I, I did, you know, a couple years ago we did a little bit of it, and I've been working you through the last, uh, the last video, which is called The Case for Faith from, from Lee Strobel. And um, here's the thing about this. You know, I, I even last night I sat down and I tried to find a place where I could stop this and interject something on it. And, and I just can't. It, it, the material is just too good. And if I said and we stopped in, in the middle of it, I think it would degrade what they've done with this. It's one of those kind of things where wisdom teaches me just to be quiet. Okay, so the best teaching I'm going to do is none today. <laughs> so, uh, but it, the question that, that, that we're going to address today is one in this 13-week class um, that I teach on Monday nights here um, called How People Grow, this is the last week of it. And it addresses one of the biggest questions that I think as Christians we face in our lives. It's the question of evil and why bad things happen to good people. And, and I, the reason I use the Lee Strobel, I mean, I use Lee Strobel in that class. We use a little bit of Cloud and Townsend on their, on their book, How People Grow. And then Cliff and I are putting together the, you know, the Bible program, that uh, study program. Then we kind of combine all that over a 13-week class. And really the point of that class is that what I notice happens, it happens to me, and I kind of see it happen to the people in the class, is this: there's a beautiful confidence that occurs when you know what you believe and why you believe it, right? I mean, it just it feels good to know because every one of us are going to face the challenging life questions. And so that's what Lee Strobel and, and his compadres on this video do. And, and I, again, I, I apologize for playing a little bit uh, longer video. But again, it, I, think it, I think it says it all. Hope it, hope it ministers to you the way it ministers to me. I, it's safe to say there's nobody in the state of Oklahoma that's seen these videos more than I have because I, I, I teach them so much or, or present them is probably a better way of saying that. So um, let me set it up real quick. On the first part of this video that I played a num number of months ago, we saw the, the um, Charles Templeton story. Do you remember that? All right. So, and I played about seven to 12 minutes of that usually. And then we discussed a little bit about what happened to this guy. I mean, he's with, he's with Billy Graham, and then all of a sudden he just walks away from his faith. And if you'll remember in that video, he says that his, when his doubts came, it was because at the night, and he said, I didn't have the um, theological training to stand up to his doubts. Now think about that. He went to seminary even. I mean, and he hung out with Billy Graham, and he was studying the Bible constantly. And so that's an interesting perspective. And then they build on that through, why is Jesus the only way to heaven? I mean, that's a pretty bold statement, right? And, and, and as Christians, we absolutely believe that. It's either true or it's not true. Remember, we put that on the board. You're faced with the way Jesus presented himself. He's either Lord or he's some crazy man or, or even worse, right? And so today, the final question is, why does bad stuff have to exist? I mean, if God's a God of love, why, why do we have to go through the things that we go through? Anybody not dealt with that in their life, stand up. We'd like to applaud you real quick. So, uh, so that's a tough question, isn't it? And so it's, the, it's one of the biggest questions that I see people come and ask me about because of the class that I work with. And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. So, again, I, I am just the index finger pressing the play button. We're going to play about 30 minutes of this. And if we have some time, we'll, we'll open it up. But I hope you enjoy it again as much as I, uh, I do. So here we go. And I'm, I'm setting this little part up so I'll make sure I get the sound right. So it'll start in about five seconds once I get it going. According to the Bible, good? 
after God created a universe and a planet perfectly designed to sustain life, he crowned his work with human beings, man and woman, endowed with spirit and soul, free will, and the capacity to make their own moral choices. God created a world in which there were morally free creatures. Human beings can be bad and they can be good. There's a possibility for great evil, but there's a potential for great good when you have moral freedom. And so our greatest blessing, which is the free will we have, the, the, the ability to make choices, moral choices, also is our greatest curse because I often choose the wrong thing, and so does everybody else. And people get hurt out of that, both intentionally and unintentionally. If God creates human beings with the power of free choice, he may foreknow what they're going to do, but he can't determine what they're going to do. Otherwise, they're not really free. And evil entered the world when people freely chose to withhold doing the right thing and instead did the wrong thing. The sheer magnitude of evil and suffering in the world can be overwhelming. And while searching for answers, some have argued that because God created humans with free will, then he's ultimately responsible for evil. It's even been suggested that God created evil. But from a biblical perspective, is that even possible? No, because evil is not a thing. Everything God creates is good. God created the world good just as it was supposed to be. But human freedom then was used in such a way as to diminish goodness in the world and that diminution, that lack, that missing goodness, that is what we call evil. So evil is a lack of goodness. It is goodness spoiled. You could have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good. And so evil was not a direct creation of God. It was the result of humans exercising their freedom. So if it was the free will of human beings that actually caused evil, then I think it's reasonable to ask, why didn't God just create a world where moral freedom didn't exist in the first place? That way, evil and suffering wouldn't exist either. God could have made a world without evil by just taking away our free will to do it. It would have been very easy for him to just simply say, well, I'm going to make you all marionettes and we'll pull the strings and everybody prays five or six times a day and everybody does right. But God wanted a race of tested individuals who choose to love him. And you cannot love someone unless you have the choice to not love him. The sort of love that humans can give to one another and to God is something which depends on them being able to do it from the bottom of their heart without being forced. As soon as it's forced, it's not love anymore. And so it was a good thing for God to create creatures with freedom because that opened up the possibility that they could actually express genuine love not only to him but to one another in intimate relationship. Sixteen hundred years ago, St. Augustine wrote, Since God is the highest good, 
he would not allow any evil to exist in his works unless his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring good even out of evil. Theologians and scholars have long pondered and debated this question. Does a loving God use evil and suffering to accomplish a greater good? I don't know why suffering can't be compatible with God's love. People have this idea that real love rescues from all pain. I ask people when they raise that issue, I say, are you a parent? Do you have children? Do you feel that your love for your children requires you to rescue them from every bit of pain? Have you never let them struggle through a difficult thing on purpose for a good reason? Of course, there's an impulse to rescue our kids. We don't want them to suffer egregiously. But there are times when we know that it's appropriate to let them suffer in the circumstances for their own good because a greater good is in view. And we have clues in our own lives. I think almost all of us can look back at some suffering in our past life and say, while I was in this, I didn't understand why God allowed it. And it was a real threat to my faith. And now that I see that it made me stronger, I do understand it. For more than 40 years, the lessons and struggle of growth through suffering have played out daily in the life of Johnny Erickson Tata. In 1967, Johnny, a 17-year-old high school senior, severed her spinal cord in a diving accident, paralyzing her body from the shoulders down. When I was first injured, I uh, imagined myself as a kind of a human guinea pig lying there on my striker frame. I was doing nothing but eating and breathing and sleeping and really just existing. And I thought, in here, you know, most people out beyond these hospital walls are going to college, getting married, having children, going to work. And I'm just lying here, sleeping, breathing, eating. And I realized, oh my goodness, upon my life, all the truths of the human race are gonna be tested. Is there a God? Does he care? What's the purpose in life? And if there is no God, then why not have my girlfriend slip my wrist? Why not take my mother's sleeping pills? Why not end it all? I mean, who can face a life of total paralysis? And somewhere in there, in my anger and frustration, I realized life's got to be more than just getting born and growing old and then dying. There's got to be a God who cares. We're too significant. There must be meaning in all of this. I don't think I would have asked those largely life questions were it not for my suffering. In the decades following her accident, Johnny's life has been marked by extraordinary accomplishment. Through her artwork, music, books, conferences, and radio and television programs, she has inspired millions of people throughout the world. In 1979, she founded Johnny and Friends, an international ministry that has taken the love and hope of Jesus to the disabled and their families. Through it all, she has intimately known both the pain of suffering and the presence of God. There are a lot of people who think I'm a strong person, and I'm not. I am such a weak person. 
I wake up in the morning, and honestly, I think, oh, Lord, I don't have the strength for this. I am so tired. I am so tired of this paralysis. But when I start to feel overwhelmed, I'll say, oh, God, I have no strength for this day, but you do. I have no resources, but you do. May I please have your resources? May I please have your strength? I can do all things through you if you strengthen me. Please let me borrow your smile for the day. And honestly, before the morning has hardly begun, I've already got a perspective on the day. I've already got peace in my heart and a mission to accomplish. And it's because I've been pushed up against God. And God has shown me some deep things about his purpose and himself that, for me, um, are so satisfying, so pleasurable. I wouldn't trade the wheelchair for anything. To ask why a good God would allow suffering is to ask why a good doctor would uh, put a needle in the backside of an infant to inoculate him. The infant doesn't understand it. All he knows is that it's horribly painful. He can't understand that, in a way, this inoculation is going to prepare him for something in the future that he's not even aware of. And in the same way, um, God is a God of intention. He's got a purpose and meaning, and everything he puts his hand to is brimming with intention and meaning. So we can rest assured that although the purposes for suffering might be hidden from us in this present life, his reasons are always wise, they're always specific, and they're always good. Perhaps the supreme demonstration of God's use of suffering and evil for good was revealed in the death of Jesus. Crucifixion was invented a few centuries before Jesus. It is widely recognized as one of the most horrendous forms of death that any state could sanction against an individual. It was so horrific that Roman citizens were not permitted to be crucified. So it's no surprise that there is a buildup of the forces of evil, if you like, shrieking at Jesus, attacking him, criticizing him, until finally they nail him to a cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land and Jesus cried out in a loud voice my God my God why have you forsaken me
and he suffered, the Bible tells us, great emotional and spiritual agony because he experienced separation with his father and he experienced the actual sin of the world in his own conscious life and what it was like to feel and experience that evil and hurt. It's the worst thing that ever happened. Three hours of darkness. God himself dies. Inconceivable. Did God allow that? Sure. He allowed the devil to creep into Judas Iscariot and Pontius Pilate and Herod and the cruel Romans and allowed the, the worst event in the history of the world. Why? For the greatest thing that happened to our salvation. That injustice was redeemed by an all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God. He could take those kinds of things and he can turn them in to the greatest goodness imaginable, the salvation that would be available only through him. And only when we see that in the light of the entire longer story do we say somehow this was how God as it were, drew those forces of evil onto one place in order to defeat and deal with them there, in order to make a new creation, beginning with Jesus' resurrection, and that's why ultimately we have hope. So an unspeakable evil was transformed into an unspeakable good through God's wisdom. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. If it can happen on such a magnificent scale like that, if you can see in that one case how great evil can produce great good, if God lifts the curtain just a little bit so you can see behind the scenes there, it's at least possible to believe that that principle is at work everywhere. This is so spectacularly wonderful that it gives us the hope that evil will never be able to be the last word about us. That there will always be a way of finding something good that while the evil was still evil, it can redeem it and keep it from triumphing over us. And Jesus answered, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's a powerful statement. Jesus is acknowledging that because of the acts of humanity that opened the door to evil in this world, we have pain, we have suffering. He doesn't try to cover it up. It's an inevitable part of life. And yet he tells us something else in that passage that's even more important. He says, I have overcome the world. You see, we have real hope. Hope that's based on the central doctrine of Christianity. God became a man and entered directly into the suffering of the world. When God became incarnate in Jesus, we are told that Jesus experienced the very same kind of heartache and suffering without sin, I admit. But Jesus was finite and he was subjected to thirst and hunger, to aggression, to hostility, to tragedy. And when Jesus stretched his hands out on the cross, he was saying, I love you this much. I love you so much it hurts. 
I love you so much I'd rather die than live without you. And those nails that went through the palms of Jesus went straight into the heart of God. There's a wonderful hymn which we sometimes sing, which has a line, And when human hearts are breaking under sorrow's iron rod, then they find that self-same aching deep within the heart of God. And that's a wonderful sense. God in Christ has been here. He has taken it. He knows what it's like. He is not unable to sympathize. He is on all fours with us. I mean, Jesus was the most God-forsaken man who ever lived so that he might in turn tell us, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That tells me God feels. He empathizes. He cares about my pains. He, he felt the sting in his chest first, and that encourages me when I hurt. In 1944, Corey Tamboom, a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, considered the full measure of God's participation in the suffering of humanity. While clinging to life in the shadow of ultimate evil, she concluded, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. There's a famous passage in Elie Wiesel's book, Night, where he recalls uh, being in a concentration camp and seeing uh, a line of people being hanged, and a little boy is one of the people being hanged, and he's so light that he doesn't die immediately because his neck doesn't break, and he's dangling there half dead and half alive, and the crowd are being forced to watch this, and somebody suddenly says, where is God, where is God? And somebody else says, there he is, he's hanging from that noose. That's the answer to the question that's often asked, where was God in Auschwitz? Where was God in, in Darfur? He was there. He was in the gas chambers. Yes, the incarnation means that he descends into the whole of the human condition. God is there at the heart of the mess and taking the worst onto himself. That's what we believe when we think about Jesus, and that's why ultimately we have hope. It makes me feel there's a certain kind of kinship that God gets it, that God understands. He's been there. He doesn't just have the facts straight. That's omniscience. He has entered into the experience of it, and that's something entirely different. He knows exactly how I feel. There is no pain that I'm going through paralyzed. He was even paralyzed on the cross. That tells me he identifies, and that, for me, is enough. The Christian response to the problem of evil and suffering was perhaps best summarized by the Apostle Paul. Two decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul described the persecution Christians endured and the hope that sustained them as they preached the gospel throughout the first century Roman world. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He refers to these things as momentary light affliction. What, Paul, are you crazy? Momentary light affliction? But well, we understand when we read further, because he goes on to explain that these are momentary light afflictions in comparison to something else, because these afflictions, and he's very particular about his words, are producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you see, there's this subtle theme through the New Testament that helps us understand this problem of evil as followers of Christ that God can cause all these things to work for good in our lives because we love him, we're called according to his purpose. And these have a transforming impact on us so that when we get to heaven, we are actually different people than we would have been if we had not gone through these things. These momentary light afflictions are producing for us the eternal weight of glory. If you only lived this life four score and ten and then you died and that was the end of it, the kind of hostilities and hurts that we have in this life would be writ large. Their significance would be stunning indeed. But from the vantage point of life forever with God in heaven, the harms and hurts that happen to us in this life, though still real and still important, are shown to be so insignificant compared to the glories and the joys we're going to experience in the afterlife that from the vantage point of that perspective, they are well, well worth it. In 1998, I was at a conference and met a young man named Mark Herringer. Mark was from Boston and we became good friends. One night we were driving to the airport and he told me about a tragedy that his family had suffered five years earlier. I'll never forget Mark's story because it demonstrated so powerfully the importance of what the hope of heaven can really mean. It was January 16th of 1993. In Boston, it snows a lot, and so you're shoveling your driveway constantly. We had gone to the uh, supermarket that morning, and while we were at the supermarket, it was actually snowing. So I got home kind of irritated and said, uh, honey, why don't you park the car out in the street here? Uh, I'll just uh, clean off the driveway. And our two kids were with us, uh, our son, uh, three years old, and our daughter, Lauren, who was 18 months old. I jumped out of the car, got a shovel, the kids jumped out with me, and I asked my wife to move the car to an to a, a easier spot for us to clean out the driveway, and she did, and she said, make sure you keep an eye on the kids. And my son immediately went with her into the car, and my daughter was with me uh, for a few moments, uh, but what I hadn't realized was that she actually wanted to be in the car also. And so as my daughter was running to the car, she uh, was uh, trapped under the front wheel of the car. There was a brief uh, scream of pain, and, uh, and I immediately ran out, and uh, to any parent's horror, uh, they see their 18-month-old uh, daughter under the front wheel of a 2,000-pound car was overwhelming. She died instantly, as we found out later. Um, I actually took the uh, last breath that she ever breathed on this earth out of her lungs. 
and we um, drove to the emergency room at the hospital, hoping and uh, praying that things might be different, but they weren't. And um, within an hour or so, they had pronounced her uh, dead. I was very angry at God. I didn't know why he would uh, choose me. And my mind would race and think, what is this all about? Where am I going? What does this all mean? Do I take my life? Do I uh, go through a divorce? We had a 97% uh, a failure rate within the first two years when there's a death of a child and the parental uh, involvement. Um, what would that mean? Would that, would that bring some closure to that? What would be a life of anger and despair uh, at God? Those options are, are not good ends. The struggle during our pain here was I had to make a decision. Am I going to accept or reject this situation that I'm in based on not knowing the end game or not knowing the, all the answers? I was given a Bible, my very first Bible, on Christmas three weeks before uh, the accident. And that Bible was to become the thing that kept me alive. There were drugs and uh, various things that people gave us to try to calm us down during this difficult few weeks, but it was actually holding the Bible and reading it was the thing that actually comforted me the most. Um, I actually slept with my Bible for about nine months every night. What I was struggling for was the reality of Jesus, the reality of somebody who knew suffering, who was going to be there, who uh, had experienced this himself. I spent a lot of time actually in cemeteries just walking around and uh, found some comfort there. I could oftentimes connect more closely with pain there because I knew that everybody there had a story and that people uh, had come and grieved there. It gave me a clarity that Jesus works powerfully in places where people are hurting. And so I found great comfort to just be quiet and listen to him there. And so um, sometimes I would just go around and read the, uh, the, the stone markers and um, uh, pray for the various families. And it actually turned from, a, from an internal thing where I was trying to get uh, healing and hope to a place where I would actually intercede for others. And that was a shift that occurred where God began to do a work that uh, my healing was going to be uh, more complete in helping others. We had five neighbors who lived next to us, directly next to us, when the accident happened. And within five years, three whole families of those households came to know Christ personally. And when I think back on where we were and how God used that, I said, that doesn't make it all right. That doesn't make it good. That doesn't make my pain go away. But it does tell me that God is bringing some good out of this, that there'll be some eternal good that comes out of her life and death. Your answer at this tough time is you are naked, you are stripped down raw. You have to make a decision. Which road are you going to take? Where are you going to go in your faith? And I think evil and suffering drive us to those points where we have to make those naked decisions. We have to make those um, raw decisions that give us nowhere out, no, no, nothing to hold on to. We're just there before him. And that's what real faith, I think, is, not knowing the future, 
but understanding enough now to make a decision that will change the future in our lives. If I look at it through my own experience, I think I would drive it to the point to say that God is in control of all things and nothing is beyond his reach, nothing is beyond his ability to control. The joy is, is knowing that this is just temporary, that there's something much more. The eternal perspective changes things because it takes the focus off of my experience now and puts it in a different level, a different realm. The Bible says uh, heaven will be a place where there's no more tears or pain or crying or death. Okay, so if, if that's true, then the hope is, is that these things will be resolved and that, that we'll understand or we'll have more clarity that we don't have now. greatest hope is, is that one day I'll walk with her in heaven. She'll be perfect. And I'll be full of joy. And this life will have made a lot more sense. Because sometimes it doesn't. But I have that hope. Philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell once said, no one can sit at the bedside of a dying child and still believe in God. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a pretty strong argument against the existence of a loving God. But as Christian philosopher William Lane Craig has pointed out, what is Russell going to say when he's kneeling at the bed of the dying child? Too bad? I'm sorry? That's the way it goes? You see, as an atheist, Russell has nothing else to offer. Because if there is no God, then we're all trapped in a world filled with senseless and unredeemable suffering with absolutely no hope of deliverance from evil. But for the Christian, God does exist. Evil and suffering can result in a greater good. And there is hope and meaning for the future. Because life doesn't end in the grave. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Suffering is in this world because sin is in this world. And if God were to get rid of sin, he'd have to get rid of sinners. I think he's delaying closing the curtain on suffering, sin, Satan, until more people have time to hear about the good news of Jesus. And if my being in this wheelchair a little bit longer provides the time and opportunity for others to come into the kingdom, then my wheelchair's worth it. My affliction is just light and momentary, and I, I don't mind waiting. Now that offer of mercy will not be extended forever. There's going to be a, come a time when he says, enough, and then he's going to deal with it, and then true justice will be done perfectly. But this is not what we want, really. We don't want justice. We want mercy. 
And for now, mercy is what's being extended. And this is why you see the continuation of evil. There is so much we don't know about evil, pain, and suffering that many times I think we're people groping in the dark trying to make sense out of it. But God gives us enough to see, to help us to keep on going, and to redeem the pain and suffering we have so it doesn't defeat us. If all I was looking at for the evidence of God was just the problem of evil, sure, I'd say, gee, that's a no-brainer. There is no God. He would never allow these kinds of things. But when I see all the other evidence in other areas for the existence of God and for a good God and a loving God, a God that cares about his creation, who's involved in his creation, well, then that helps put this particular question a little bit more into perspective. But I'll be the first one to admit it's emotionally difficult. I think most Christians go through a sense of deep puzzlement which can come sometimes once in somebody's life, sometimes a thousand times in somebody's life, of I really thought God was going to enable such and such to happen, and it hasn't happened. And so, yes, we can have huge disappointments, but the God to whom we go back and on whose door we beat and we say, what on earth is going on here, is the God who says, remember what I have been through. Remember the story of my son. One of the worst things that was ever done in the world was done to the best man that ever walked on the earth. So again, when we put it into the light of Jesus and what happened to him, do bad things happen to good people? What's it all about? It's very strange, but somehow God holds that within his purpose and will bring good out of it and through it. Sometimes when we suffer, we're just hoping somebody will give us the formula, how to fix it. What's the step one, two, three, four, A, B, C, D? Show me what to do, I'll do it. And, and God blows all that to smithereens. He lobs a hand grenade into the middle of it all and, and explodes it. He won't let us approach suffering with our own agenda. We've gotta to come to him empty-handed, blessed are the poor in spirit, I don't have the answers, God. And when we come to him like that, completely defenseless, and approaching him without a technical, fix-it, mechanistic approach to life, okay, I've got the formula, I know the answers, then we find God to be the answer. We can face anything if we know God is there in the midst of it all. I examined the biblical view of evil and suffering for many months, and honestly, I think I could spend the rest of my life trying to understand it all. The questions can be brutally difficult, and the answers are not quick, and they're not easy. Is Christian theology a satisfying explanation for the suffering in the world? Yes, I believe it is. Does it always offer immediate and total comfort when we hurt? No, not always. But if we come to God in faith, I believe he gives us legitimate reasons for hope that can carry us through the most difficult circumstances of our lives. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Some powerful words, isn't it? Every time I watch that, I mean, if that doesn't strike you and get deep into your soul and help it, it does me. It really does. We've all faced many, many struggles and trials. I wish we had time to really open up and talk about this today. Um, we, we would do good with it, I'm sure. Um, the thing that I'd point out with you, and two very quick things that I'll leave with you is, did you notice that we had two people in those videos that faced some very intense struggles, right? Just like many of us have in this room. But those struggles don't seem to define them, do they? And I think that's our choice. We can let the, the struggle define us, and, and listen, I'm not talking that it's not appropriate to grieve. That's very much appropriate. I'm not taking anything away from anybody on that. What I would say is that can we go to God in these struggles or are we left to just check our intelligence at the door in, in all this mess? And I don't think so. I think there's enough in the, in the Bible and through the story of Jesus and through stories like, like both these people. It's, it's interesting that Mark, the, the man that told about his family story, uh, He's at Irving Bible Church down in Fort Worth, and uh, he's there with a, a guy that I know a lot about uh, named Jay Utley. And uh, I, I just I was amazed to watch how he turned with that story, you know? that He could have turned another way, but he chose to turn, that, and he has that hope. And so the last thing I'll leave you with um, is, is, comes from C.S. Lewis, really. And he, you know, the, the question is, if there is a God... Why is there so much evil, right? But there's also the flip side of the coin that I think so many times we don't consider. If there is no God, how come there's so much good? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for uh, the way that you work in our lives, Lord. And sometimes we don't understand that. We don't understand how this life unfolds. And, and sometimes we're left with questions and concerns, Father. But I'm also grateful, Lord, that in those times that we can go down on our knees and pray to you and that you hear us. And sometimes, Father, the answers aren't the way we want them and, and uh, we don't understand that either, Lord. But you do hear us and you walk with us even through the darkest places of our life. And, uh, and, and so we, we just stop and are cognizant of that. As we go into our lives, Father, and as we face the trials that we know that will be ahead of us, Father, I pray that we can leave this room, leave the, the doorways of this room, knowing you better than we did yesterday and better tomorrow than we do today, and that you will direct us through the dark valleys. I pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great week.